What have you been up to the past year and a half since we talked last? Um, as far as school research, you know, all that. Yeah. So let's see. Been up to a ton of stuff. I am just at the tail end of a bunch of travel this summer for research stuff. So essentially, since we last talked, I've got my dissertation data collections going. I'm about maybe a quarter of the way done with those. Uh, at the beginning of the summer, I was presenting some preliminary results from that at the American College of Sports Medicine uh, conference in San Diego. Uh, I got to present some preliminary results at the World Athletics Championships in Eugene in July, which was awesome. And then just uh, two weeks ago, I was in Ottawa, Canada for a biomechanics conference, uh, also to present a different part of, of what we've been working on. And uh, tomorrow I am driving to North Carolina to finish up data collections. So been like a, essentially once things opened up after the pandemic, I've been a whirlwind of trying to get data and uh, and get this get this uh, biomechanics project going. So what where are you as far as like um, you know yeah how where are you as far as like completing your whole program and being totally done? Yeah, hopefully under a year. Uh, well, I certainly hope under a year because I, my, my lease here in Indiana only goes through next August. So I certainly hope I'll be done by then. <laughs> yeah. So essentially I have to finish collecting data and then finish writing up my project and I'm, I'm aiming, aiming to be done sometime next spring. Okay, nice. Um, well, let me, uh, explain for listeners, uh, how this came about here, what we're talking about today. So this is going to be all about feeling for the marathon. Um, so you wrote an article on your blog on your, do you call it a blog? What do you, yeah. Blog okay. website. Yeah. So runningwritings.com, which is a definitely recommended read. However often you put something out, it's always really thorough and well thought through and, um, much more meaty than your average kind of hit and run piece in whatever popular running media, you know, you see out there. Um, so you did one, I think it was back in July and it was all about, um, how elite runners with bottle service can plan their fueling for a marathon. Um, the goal of this conversation is to unpack some of the things you said in the article and try to get a really firm grasp on, uh, the point of fueling for a marathon in the first place and really try to like define the problem we're trying to solve and, uh, go into the science a little bit. So we could start um, with some of the basics. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think how to phrase this because here's the problem I always have with trying to talk to people about this. I feel like it's hard to step back and like explain the context of what you're even talking about. Because when you start talking about carbs and fat and those kind of things, it's hard to define what you're talking about when you're talking specifically about a marathon. Cause there's so many other, there's so much other noise around carbs and calories and stuff. So yeah, maybe a good place to start is just like with the, the really basic stuff of like, where does the energy you use when you run come from? Uh, what happens when you run faster and slower and, uh, where, where does that energy come from both like inside the body and what happens to like some carbs that you take in as fuel? So maybe we could start there. Yeah, sure. And, you know, just to set up a couple of basic facts, too, um, you know, there are calories, right? (laughs) 
First of all, maybe we could just define what a calorie is. Yeah. So here's so here's here's where the original definition of calories come from. You take some amount of food, and this is actually how they measure the amount of calories in food. You take some food and you and you like light it on fire and you burn it, and you measure how much energy comes off of it. Uh, that's how many calories are in that uh, amount of food. And one one calorie is the amount of energy it would take to take. Uh, I think it's one, one uh, gram of water and increase its temperature by one degree Celsius. It's some like you know very specific definition, but it's just an amount of energy. Uh, so a, a calorie is an amount of energy. It's in food. The three sources of calories that you can make use of in your body are number one, carbs, number two, fat, number three, protein. So like you and me just sitting here, uh, maybe one to 5% of our energy is coming from protein. It's, it's a pretty small, trivial amount. We generally ignore it uh, in terms of like calculating exercise physiology stuff probably 60 65% of our calories that we're burning right now are coming from fat and then the rest are coming from carbs and when you start running you start obviously you need to burn more energy to move your body to like physically contract your muscles so your caloric expenditure goes up and uh, the energy you use is going to come from either carbs or fat uh, stored in your body. And as you run faster, the proportion of those calories that come from carbohydrates goes up because carbs are uh, easier and faster to burn. They give you more energy too. Now, something, and this kind of like shades into your first question here, something that's useful to know about the the energetic cost of running, obviously per unit time, the faster you run, the more energy you burn, right? That's that, that should be obvious, but per unit distance. So like to run a mile, the amount of calories you burn is mostly the same. We can get into the details about, uh, exactly what that, what that energy per unit distance curve looks like. But for most people, for most speeds that they would run, like for a marathon, the calories you burn per mile does not depend on how fast you go. Obviously, you're burning high calories at a higher rate when you're running fast, but you're covering more distance, and so it, it cancels out. Uh, so that's a good thing. So maybe the two important like basic marathon facts are, number one, calories per mile is not affected by how fast you're running, but number two, uh, the proportion of those calories that come from carbohydrates is a function of how fast you go. And to a, a rough approximation, um, I'm gonna need one more technical term I should probably define here is is a VO2 max. I think most people probably know what that is. But um, as you run faster, your oxygen consumption goes up. Once you get to a certain speed, for most people, that's like 3K or 5K race pace that oxygen consumption will top off because your body is totally maxed out in terms of how much aerobic energy it can burn. We call that VO2 max. So when I say like something like 80% of VO2 max, that you can interpret that as roughly like 80% of, of 3K pace or, or 5K pace, more or less. So anyways, to a first approximation, uh, the percentage of your VO2 max that you're running at, so roughly percentage of 3K race pace, or 5k race pace is the percentage of your calories per mile that come from carbohydrates. Now this is relevant for the marathon because, uh, 
most well-trained marathoners are going to run 80, 85% of VO2 max for the marathon, meaning of those calories per mile that they're burning, about 80% of them, 85% of them need to be carbs. Uh, and that that's, this is essentially the problem of marathon fueling is, uh, where do those carbs come from? Generally, your body can't store all the carbs you need to go the full distance of the marathon without fueling at all. Okay, great. That was a great setup. Um, to dig into that a little more, this this uh, principle of calories per mile being mostly constant, no, no matter the speed. Um, <clears throat> is there much evidence that gives us somewhat of a you know, rule of thumb for how many calories that is for most people and how much does that vary from individual to individual? Yeah. You know, I did, uh, I did some digging before this and I came up with a really nice, uh, formula if I can find it in my notes here. Um, so that, and the the technical term for this thing that we're, we're talking about is, um, cost of transport, like physiologists and biomechanists would call this the metabolic cost of transport. Okay. And it's usually expressed as uh, calories per unit distance per unit body mass. Because obviously like a 180-pound runner is going to burn more energy per unit distance than a 100-pound runner. It's because they have more body mass. Um, but uh, I found a nice a nice paper, uh, Fletcher et al. 2009, and I did a few conversions with the numbers in it. So here is a formula that should give you uh, a range of values that uh, 95% of the population should uh, should apply to like kind of the middle 95%. So yeah. if you take your body weight in pounds uh, and you take between 66 and 91% of that number, uh, that should give you your calories burned per mile of running. Uh, now that's total calories. So only whatever percent of you to max you're running roughly is going to come from carbs. So like, let's say, and the average, the average, the, the typical, the typical runner is, um, that's going to be 78%. So like, let's say you weigh 160 pounds. That gives a range of 106 to 146 food calories per mile. If you're running 80% of you to max and about 80% of your calories are coming from carbs that means every mile you're burning 85 to 116 calories which is about 21 to 29 grams of carbs because there's four another useful number to keep in mind Hmm. four uh calories per gram of carbohydrates and this actually this is like we'll get into like carbohydrate uh intake later but just like looking at these numbers really quick makes it quite obvious where kind of why marathon pace is ultimately unsustainable. So let's suppose you were running six minute mile pace, um, at that rate of caloric, uh, expenditure. That means you're blowing through like 210 to 290 grams of carbs per hour. And we'll get into this later, but you know, even the most aggressive carb fueling, uh, strategies suggest, you know, you probably can top out at 90 grams per Per hour of carb intake so clearly there's this huge mismatch between like you're you're just blowing through like over 200 grams per hour and at, at best best case scenario you can replace 90 grams so even with optimal fueling your carb reserves are dropping in the marathon and the idea with optimal fueling is to hopefully like not have that tank empty out 
Um, one thing I should mention about these numbers, by the way, is that like the interpretation of that range of percentages um, is that's the range of people's running economy. So when you talk about running economy, essentially what that is, is uh, how much energy do you use to uh, run at a certain speed compared to somebody else? And it's usually also normalized to body mass. But like, say you look at numbers on both of those ends of that range, like suppose you had 260 pound runners, one of them uh, is on the high end burning 91% of his or her body mass in food calories per mile. The other one's on the low end. The one on the high end is not as economical of a runner as the one on the low end, like by definition, you know, just like a just like a car that doesn't get very good fuel economy. Um, it needs to burn more gasoline per mile of driving. Same thing with a, a non-economical runner. Their caloric cost is higher per mile. Okay, so let's let's get an idea of what kind of potential deficit we're talking about um, for like w how much fuel and you start out with in terms of you know glycogen, blood glucose, everything, and then how much it takes to actually complete. So to stick with your example of a hundred and sixty pound person, what was if what was the number um, of calories per mile that you said would probably be if yeah they were so average. let's say let's say they're just uh they're just like average yeah. um that would be so if we just do like 160 times 0.78 so 78 percent of your body mass that means 125 calories total per mile let's say they're in decent marathon shape so they're running about 80 percent of u2 max uh and burning about 80 percent of those calories per mile that the, happily that actually works out to almost exactly 100 calories of carbs per mile okay and then so that's so for the whole marathon that's a little over 2600 calories of carbohydrates mm -hmm. which would be you divide that by four to get the number of grams is that right yeah, yeah. uh okay which is which is going to be way more so let's say we said what 2600 divided by four that's 650 Grams. That's like an entire one way to think about how much energy you blow through. Like that's about a pound. Uh, so like you know the you go like you're baking cookies. You have like a big bag of of sugar, one pound bag of sugar. Mm -hmm. Like you burn that whole thing running that marathon. Yeah. So like there's no way you could you know you could eat a whole bag of sugar during a marathon. So well now that's so that leads me to my next question. Um, going back to the range of caloric cost depending on body mass, right? Mm -hmm. So a larger person, you know, that's intuitive. A larger person will cost, it'll cost them more energy to carry themselves, you know, per mile. But on the other hand, is there some kind of, um, you know, trade off there where it's like, yeah, they have more mass, but they also have more muscle mass, which is helping them burn the energy and has more storage capacity for glycogen. So is there much of a, uh, you know, how much of a, f for every extra pound of muscle mass you have, yeah, that's costing you more, but how much of that extra cost is made up for by the fact that it's more muscle, which is going to produce energy, plus it's more storage for glycogen? Yeah, yeah. I think what, what really matters is where, so like where that added mass is. 
So if it's added leg muscle mass, I, I don't think it's a problem for the reasons you just articulated. Like muscle stores most of the glycogen in your body. You have a couple hundred calories worth in your in your liver, but most of it is stored in muscles. The thing with the intramuscular glycogen, though, is that you can only use it in the muscle that uh, it's in. So like if you do a bunch of upper body weightlifting and you have like really big biceps and shoulder muscles, they might have a lot of glycogen in it, but the, that glycogen is inaccessible to your lower body. Oh. So it's not just how much you weigh, but it's where that mass is distributed. So people who have it really hard are people who carry a lot of body mass in their upper body because that's adding to the caloric cost of running, but it's not helping with the energy storage uh, or the, the generation of, of force during running. Uh, and then people who have it relatively easy are people who have uh, more of their body mass in their leg muscles and you know, long muscular legs and relatively small upper body from like from a glycogen storage uh, standpoint. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so to stick with this example and, and try to finish out the whole picture we're looking at, we're looking at, you know, and, and, you know, just to reiterate, these numbers are obviously there's going to be lots of variation from individual to individual, but just to stick with the example to get the, the, you know, the formula mostly right here. Um, so we got a 160 pound person roughly burning 125 total calories per mile, roughly a hundred calories per mile worth of carbs, roughly 2,600 calories for the whole marathon. That's what they're going to need. Now the question of where it comes from. So I've heard a rough rule of thumb that you can store or, you know, I don't know. Again, this will depend on your amount of muscle mass, but, and we just talked about storing it in your muscles, but I've heard the number 2000 thrown around. Like you can store up to 2000, give or take, um, 2000 calories of carbs, which would be what? 500 grams. Um, yeah. So, yeah, 2000, so in our example, that would leave you like 600 shy so, of finishing. Yeah. So how is there – I, I don't even know where I got that number, but I've heard it. Is there a good rule of thumb like related to body weight or anything about how much you can store or how much you can store in the right places like we were saying? Yeah. So the I think it's pretty well known with the liver that it's like you know in the kind of several hundred, like four or five, six hundred calorie range. And then with muscles, it's tricky because it's that's actually a highly trainable um, thing. So like average person who doesn't run, uh, their intramuscular glycogen stores are much lower than somebody who trains. And in fact, there there's some studies where like if you if you have people start doing exercise with just one leg, um, only the muscles in the exercise leg increase their glycogen stores, and the other ones don't. So I don't think I think. Uh, any like any number that I would provide for uh, here's how much glycogen your your muscles can store right. is is not going to be that applicable just because there's a wide there's a uh, wide range of what you're going to see probably depending on um, what your training looks like and, and sure. also individual factors as well. But when you when you look at kind of averages and you try to calculate like for most people running you know that kind of eighty eighty five ish. Uh, percent of view to max for the marathon with a typical running economy with typical 
muscle glycogen stores after training who are on a high carbohydrate diet because that's another thing that you can uh that that can manipulate intramuscular glycogen levels um when you work all that math out you get to they can probably make it 18 to 22 miles at marathon pace before they're really seriously running close to empty yeah uh and how far that is ends up being uh Kind of, kind of determined by where you are on that distribution of like running economy and intramuscular glycogen stores. Um, maybe the useful conclusion though is most people can't make it a full marathon at marathon pace without uh, taking extra fuel in. Yeah, or at okay. least not not without substantially slowing down. Yeah. So anecdotally, everybody kind of knows the quote wall is around, you know, 18, 20, 22 miles thereabouts. And now we've kind of just like unpacked why that is. I guess the next question is, okay, maybe I can use these kind of these facts and these rough, you know, these formulas to kind of estimate how many calories my deficit will be, you know, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um so if it's somewhere around 600 calories of just carbs, that seems like a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, this so that would be six gels, right? Because a gel is about 100. Almost all gels are, are 25 grams of carbs. They're 100, gram, 100 calories. So that's actually about, like, happily, that turns out to be right around what, uh, what we would recommend for, for, like, optimal fueling intake. Um, one thing maybe to, that I should point out that is relevant for like when and how much you, you want to think about refueling is that your fatigue level as a function of how many, how much carbs you have in reserve is not like a zero one flip of flip of a light switch kind of deal. It's not like you're great, you're great, you're great. And then you run out of carbs and then instantly you blow up as you, as you approach the wall, uh, your fatigue ramps up. Uh, proportionally. And that's probably an adaptive mechanism in your brain to try to avoid the the hard crash. So even if you do some math and you calculate, well, like in theory, if I, if I get, you know, if I get exactly 600 carbs, I should just be able to squeak across the line. Uh, usually you want to err on the more um, aggressive side of fueling if you can to avoid even those early stages of, of fatigue. Um, but you're right. Yeah. Getting back to your point, like 600 calories is a lot that that's like six gels. That's, uh, so I mean, what would that be if you were say running a three hour marathon, that's, uh, a gel every 30 minutes or every, every four miles if you're running. Well, and slightly, and cause if, if we're talking about the deficit being in the hundreds, like less than a thousand, um, I mean, yeah, you may not get exactly to the, to the, to like the, you know, 10 or less calories getting the right exact amount or whatever. And like you said, yeah, you can err on the aggressive side and all that. But at the same time, I mean, I feel like you could probably zero in a little bit. So you're not completely in the dark on what you're doing and why. So to, uh, dig a little deeper here, um, like you said, just us sitting here, not doing any exercise, you know, your body, you, you know, your basal metabolic rate is, um, you know, there's calculators for that based on your body weight and everything. But 
that can be in the like 1500 to 2500 calories per day range um so if you're burning something like 100 calories per hour just existing um you know it seems like you have an account for other things besides just running the marathon like you're going to be burning some calories just by being a living person so some of those are not all those calories are going to go to your leg muscles your brain has to keep functioning all your organs so even if you do roughly calculate you need to take six gels or whatever it is or you know plus some extra just for good measure um how much should you try to account for like x percentage of those calories not even being used for the running like how many of those calories are actually going to end up doing what you want them to do you know what i mean yeah so so the nice thing about those numbers that i quoted earlier about like caloric cost per per mile is those are that's the net metabolic cost and so how you would how you measure like where those come from is runner comes into the lab they just like lay on a table and you measure their oxygen consumption uh, so they're totally at rest and you have their resting metabolic rate then you have them run on a treadmill at a bunch of different speeds and you subtract off the resting metabolic rate so in theory at least the those numbers should reflect the the net metabolic cost like on top of you just existing Okay, so it's there are some assumptions that maybe go into that, uh, like you know, th- the functions of your body not requiring more. But at least in theory, that should rec- re- that should reflect only the added uh, metabolic cost on top of your baseline existence. Gotcha. Okay, so that's taken. That's okay. You can, we can put that aside. Um, but then the question becomes uh, sort of like timing and you know, when is this fuel going to get to where it needs to go? So maybe again, we could back up and I mean, can you explain where food goes? Cause, and this will, we can circle back to this when we get to talking about different brands, cause some brands advertise kind of bypassing parts of these, um, some of these steps along the way, but you know, you ingest something orally, um, you know, what, what's the like kind of step one, step two in order to, you know, end up being productive fuel? Yeah. So essentially here, here's what happens for like from the moment you take a swig of a sports drink or a gel. The first thing that happens that's worth noting actually is that the carbs stimulate oral uh, like nerve receptors in your mouth that activate pleasure and reward centers in your brain. So this is like the, the mouth rinse effect that, that people might have heard of and is something that you can take advantage of late in the marathon. But that's actually the very first thing that happens is that you have these receptors in your mouth that tell your brain, hey, I have carbohydrates coming in, like good news. Then carbs go into your stomach uh, and where they are digested if they're complex carbs and they have to empty into the small intestine. And that's, this turns out to be a pretty significant barrier to absorption of carbs is like the the is it called gastric emptying but like how long does it take for carbs to go from sitting in your stomach to being in the small intestine so during that during that time is when longer chain carbs like um, maltodextrin or sucrose or cornstarch are um, chopped up into glucose or fructose which are just like the individual smallest units of uh, of sugar 
So that process is super fast. So that that part doesn't matter. And this is kind of why we'll talk about this later, but like not that important exactly whether you have like glucose or maltodextrin or as your your glucose source. So once carbs get into the small intestine, then they get absorbed uh, into blood vessels. And then they have to go through this, this um, essentially they go through the liver through this thing called the hepatic portal system. So it's blood vessels that go straight from your intestine to your liver. And this is like a really, really, really old, uh, like biological process that is uh, an adaptation to protect you from toxins. So like if you eat something poisonous, your liver is there to like essentially take the hit before that blood goes to the rest of your body. Okay. So stuff in the food you eat goes to your liver first. And this is relevant for, for carbohydrate metabolism because um, pretty much all, if you have, um, let's say you have Gatorade, right? Gatorade is uh, basically like high fructose corn syrup. So it's got glucose and it's got fructose. The two, uh, these are like two simple sugars. About a third of that glucose that you consume gets taken up by the liver and the other two thirds gets passed directly into the bloodstream. And basically all of the fructose gets taken up by the liver as well. So what happens to those, uh, those the stolen carbs that go into the liver is um, they can either get metabolized immediately by the liver to do its job, um, or they get turned into glycogen, which is stored in the liver. Uh, and that, like that's how your liver keeps those you know a couple hundred carbs of uh, of glycogen ready, um, or glucose can get metabolized back into or sorry fructose can get metabolized back into glucose and then get passed out into the bloodstream. Um, so this is why it is advantageous for your sports drink or your gel to have both glucose and fructose in it because. Um, not only is some of the fructose go, get to go into the liver and get processed, but also that transportation uh, from the intestines into the blood, glucose and fructose go through like different um, like different portals. So you can you can absorb more um, more carbohydrates because you're kind of like using two. It's like a two lane road instead of a one right, one lane yeah. road. So once those carbs get through the liver. What you have is uh, glucose going into your bloodstream. Uh, and then it gets pumped all through your body, goes to your muscles or your brain or wherever else. And the primary driver of um, carbs coming from the blood into your muscles are these like transporter proteins in muscles that like pull glucose uh, into the muscle cell and then it gets into the mitochondria and then you burn it and then you have energy. So that's essentially the, the path from like the, 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 the water bottle to the muscle. And it's worth thinking about what are the, what are like the rate limiting steps? Like what's the bottleneck here? And based mm -hmm. on the research that I've read, it sounds like the biggest barrier is that absorption from the stomach uh, into the intestine and then from the intestine into the bloodstream. And the best evidence for this comes from the fact that if you give people a, like an IV of glucose and you just like shortcut around the, uh, digestive system, they're able to burn more carbs than, uh, they would, the, the than they would if they were like drinking a sports drink. Mm. So how long does this take? Uh, you might ask 
there are some really nice studies where they they put uh, they essentially like put like a radioactive tracer in the carbohydrates in a sports drink, and those studies show that if you start drinking uh, your like radioactive Gatorade right when you start exercising, you start seeing that uh, sugar show up in the the exhaled carbon dioxide about like twenty to thirty minutes later. So this is kind of where that like. 20, 20, 30 minute delay comes from between when you consume carbohydrates and when your muscles can actually start burning like that specific molecule that you just consumed. Okay. So now that makes us think more about when are we going to actually take, if we got the theoretical numbers roughly figured out, the timing seems to matter a lot here. Um, So is the best way to do this just kind of, you know, think about the 26 miles, figure out roughly what your pace you're going to be running, and then start at the end and say, like, with our three-hour example, just start with the – if you are if you think you're going to finish the marathon in about three hours, start at the – should you kind of start backwards and go all the way to the beginning and every 20 to 30 minutes just plan taking yeah, in? That's... Or – yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, that that's exactly how how I recommend doing it. Is like essentially because of that 20 30 minute delay, that probably means you don't want to take you don't you don't want to like take any like gels or like, you know, serious heavy carbs in the last 20 or 30 minutes of the race. Uh you can use that mouse rinse, rinse effect if you want. Um but yeah, for our 3-hour marathon, let's say we we decided okay, we'll do like two and a half hours, 2 hours one and a half, one, 30 minutes. Uh, and then you can also like, you can go negative too. That's the nice thing about like the marathon is like, you can take a gel 15 minutes before you start the race. And that's like, that's your like mile zero, um, carbohydrates. So yeah, I think working backwards is definitely the the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Now in practice, you have, you usually have to consider like, where are the aid stations? Um, if you're an elite, like where, you know, where, where, do, where do I get my bottles? Like, what's convenient in terms of when can I, like how many carbs do I want to be carrying with me? One reason why it's nice to do the, like the mile zero, like, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before the race car gel is then you don't have to carry that one with you. Yeah. Um, so to your article, um, you reference a, a study or a, I don't know if it's a study or a, just a kind of overview kind of article article or something. Um, but you said to aim for 60 grams of carbs per hour, which conveniently comes out to one per minute. Um, and it seemed to me like the way and, – and then you referenced a few minutes ago that the the high end of what people can manage or you know rel- realistically absorb is somewhere up to 90 grams per hour. But I think that was for more like – lower intensity exercise lasting like longer than two and a half hours. Um, but anyways, to, to what you said about this 60 grams per hour, is that, does that number have more to do with what is ideal for what we've been talking about, the needs of a marathon, or is that just kind of the maximum most people tend to be able to absorb? So why not just go for the maximum? How do you yeah. think they arrived at that number 60 per hour? 
Yeah, so that number comes from what most people's, like kind of circa 2011, what most people's like maximum carb uh, absorption was or what, what researchers thought it was. Actually, even since I, I've written that blog post, I, my thinking is starting to evolve a little bit on this, informed uh, partially by a few conversations I had at, at uh, conferences this summer with people who are like, working with you know, high-level marathoners uh, and some newer research coming out in the last few years. Especially there's, um, there was a, a meta-analysis I read just when I was preparing for this podcast that was showing that while it's not conclusive yet, there does seem to be uh, an accumulation of studies now showing like beyond 60 grams of carbohydrates is uh, is a good idea and might even be more beneficial um, as long as you get those carbohydrates from multiple sources. So something glucose-based and fructose-based. Now, the one uh, real challenge is that a, a non-trivial percentage of people, like 10, 15, 20% of people, um, don't tolerate high levels of carb intake very well. Um, they get gastrointestinal problems. Um, they get you know, nauseous or, or, um, or other, you know, diarrhea or, or other like, uh, things that will like, really ruin your day in yeah. a marathon. Um, and that seems to be a highly individual thing. So people's tolerance for that is uh varies a lot so i think now what i'm recommending is maybe start with start with 60 grams an hour see if you can get that down and then try to bump it up to 70 or 80 or maybe even 90 because the the evidence suggests if you can make that work it's a big if but there might be significant performance benefits to it and it sounds like that's what a lot of the people working with like you know national caliber teams uh are doing is is trying to get people up to to higher carb intakes. Okay, so you've said a couple of times the the like uh like what you take doesn't necessarily matter as long as it's got the fructose and sucrose or glucose or sucrose. Yeah. So glucose and fructose. Is yeah. What, it's, it's, now there's a there's like kind of an asterisk to that because there are some there are some forms of carbohydrates that are like uh, many units of glucose stacked together, like maltodextrin, for example. But uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the the form of fueling. So the I, just for fun, I looked up a couple popular brands to see what is the source of carbs in them. So yeah. um, if you look at the nutrition label on like Martin, you get glucose, fructose. Um, goo energy is maltodextrin, which is just a bunch of glucose molecules chained together and fructose. And remember your stomach has enzymes that take that maltodextrin and just chop it up into individual glucose molecules. And that's not, um, that's not a rate limiting step. So that part doesn't really matter. Um, hammer gel uses maltodextrin and like fruit juice, which is really high in, in fructose, um, Cliffshot uses maltodextrin and sucrose, which is like table sugar, and that's a glucose and a fructose uh, molecule stuck together. Same thing, you have enzymes that just like chop that in two, no problem. Um, UCAN uses this like specially cooked cornstarch, which has a bunch of glucose polymers, but they're supposed to be slower to digest. We can get into like that flavor of stuff later. Um, 
Gatorade uses maltodextrin and um, rice syrup, which is basically um, uh, sucrose. So the now the the all of these that have some combination of glucose-based and fructose-based sugar are great. The only caveat is if you have a uh, a high sensitivity to stomach problems with carbs, you might try aiming for something with less or no fructose in it because it seems like that might be associated with a higher incidence of um, GI issues in some people. But so if you can if you can do it, uh, go for one of these sources of carbs that has both glucose and fructose. If you are having a lot of stomach problems, uh, try something that's just um, just glucose or just maltodextrin. Okay. Uh, so base, basically, the, the the bottom line with all these seems like they're using the same basic elements, just in different combinations, sort of. When it, you know, by the time it's getting to your or in the stomach or is getting chopped up it kind of doesn't matter at that point as far as your stomach concerned it's the same stuff in just different quantities for each and different proportions or whatever um but if you what about uh, and this may be a dumb question but like what about where is all these products where are they getting their fructose and sucrose or glucose like what about the source of those types of sugar i mean is it just you know, does it all, do, like, if you back up the supply chain or whatever, are they all coming from the same sources? I mean, the sugar has to come from somewhere. There's, like, different types of sugar and whatnot. So what does that matter if you back up further and ask yeah, where are these sugars are I, coming from? I personally don't think so. I'm sure these companies would say, like, oh, we, you know, we source it from, like, special beet plants in Brazil, and there it's really high quality and or we, we provide it with a special like hydrogel that makes it like digest blah blah blah, but I think at the end of the day like it probably doesn't matter like glucose is a super simple molecule fructose is a super simple molecule, um, probably most of the time they're coming from uh, like corn syrup or sugarcane or some you know industrially processed uh, uh, cash crop, and and whether you know what some people like trail runners they'll get into like some like super organic uh fair trade honey from the rainforest at the end of the day i, I think it's just uh it's yeah. uh it's just sugar and it's uh, broken down it. so much to the, like the simplest like you said molecular level i mean it's yeah it's not like you're it, i guess the the point is your stomach there's not much work for it to do to like peel off of it's not like you're eating a you know uh Twinkie or something, and it's got to yeah. sift through a whole bunch of junk, you know. Yeah. To get now the through. the maybe the one like thing to to bring up is like some of these special formulations that are supposed to modulate how quickly um, carbohydrates are absorbed. I looked into uh, like like Martin has their like hydrogel formulation um, that's supposed to kind of modify the gastric emptying. I found one study from 2020 that that reviewed six other papers and said there's really no <laughs> no difference, um, which is like which is kind of good because it's like works just well, as well as anything. Well, that's else. like their whole pitch is the hydrogel. I mean, that's like their whole their whole. So I mean, that makes you wonder. I wanted to bring up Martin to just and we can get that out of the way now. Like that seems to be like 
everybody, well, what's Kip Chogi doing? I'll do whatever he's doing. If he's doing it, it must be the best. Oh, and now you have like all the elites mostly, or probably at least half of the elites are doing Martin. And it's like, well, there has to be something different about it. And yeah, when you hear them tell it, it is the hydrogel, like, you know, I don't know which part of the process, but there's some process where it supposedly like makes digestion unnecessary or it like puts it in the super capsule that goes straight to the whatever. Um, and the whole point is, well, it cuts down on the time it takes to get to the muscles. And that's great. Even if it is true, which sounds like may or may not be, but even if that was true, really to get around that, don't you just have to, if you're going to take something else, just take it a little bit earlier and problem solved, you know? Um, so I don't yeah. know. What do you think? Yeah, so I, 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 you know, I did, I, like I said, I looked into the, I found this nice paper from Andy King, uh, published in 2020, that said, like, when you look at the actual rate of, they call it exogenous carbohydrate oxidation. So you can, you could, using uh, exercise physiology equipment, you can see um, how many, like, what percentage of your carbs, how much energy are you burning from outside your body? Um, and when you compare like a, a Martin hydrogel based gel to like just your average glucose fructose gel, no difference in, in carb oxidation. So I, you know, I don't have, I don't have like a horse in this race here. Um, a lot of the athletes I work with really like Martin. And I think the reason they do is because it's, it's really like, it's super simple. It's nice and bland. It doesn't like have it like crazy taste. Yeah. Um, it's a very clean formulation. Yeah. Um, so I, I honestly think like there, it's a pretty good product. Um, I just don't think the, the hydrogel formulation is like the, the killer right. uh, feature. It's, of no, it. it's not like a magic bullet or anything. Um, well now that brings us to another question I had, which is some products, uh, really like to emphasize the fact that they have a lower glycemic value or, you know, they don't cause your blood sugar to spike the way other simple sugar products will. And therefore, if your blood sugar doesn't spike, then that means it won't crash and you have more, quote, steady energy throughout the race as far as these kind of wild swings back and forth. And then at the same time, if your blood sugar is not spiked, that means you're not releasing insulin and insulin blocks the fat burning response. So then you're, you're able to keep a slightly higher percentage of fat contribution along the way and therefore conserve your carbs um, and not run out. Cause that's the whole point. What do you, and just to name names here, the two that I know that definitely are making this case are uh, you can and spring energy um and i've tried both of those personally um and i i don't know i can't i can't i haven't used any product enough to make any statement like yeah this definitely does this or that or whatever but what do you think about the theory behind that of the whole blood sugar management aspect yeah i i'm not really convinced i actually think that what you you kind of want a big spike in in blood glucose and you kind of want a lot of blood uh, a lot of insulin in your blood because the higher your blood insulin is the more because what it what it what insulin does it's a hormone that pulls glucose from your blood into cells in your body uh and that's when you have high blood glucose 
or blood insulin, um, that means you're pulling lots of glucose into your muscles and burning them. So there, you can have sponsored some studies on their supplement and, um, they work kind of like this Well, they work the, the one study on runners kind of work like this, get a bunch of people, you split them into three groups. One group, um, is going to be given only water. One group's going to be given, you can, which is like a, essentially my understanding is they like, they take cornstarch, which is a long chain glucose polymer, and they kind of partially cook it. So you absorb it more slowly. Um, something to do with like the, the chemistry of the molecule makes it such that it actually does become a rate limiting step. How quickly your body can like chop off glucose molecules from it. Um, so there's, there's the water group, the UCAN group and the like traditional sports drink group. But what they did in this study is everybody drinks 50 grams worth of carbs or just water one time at the start of their exercise. And then they run on a treadmill for three hours <laughs> and you do see like the traditional sports drink, you get a big spike and then, uh, you could call it a crash, but what it, what it is, does is like after about an hour, the, uh, blood glucose levels of the traditional sports drink group look like the water only group. Uh, and then the UCAN group has the kind of like a stretched out lower, uh, like longer bump. Um, but I don't think that's very realistic for what you would be encountering in a marathon and probably what you want to do, like you want to be in the, the, the high spike group, but just like keep taking carbohydrates. So you right. keep a constantly high blood glucose and blood, uh, insulin level. Um, so that you can take as many, as many carbs from outside the body into your muscles and burn them. Now, like one, it is true, and this this comes up to a much greater degree in some of this like really aggressive uh, like ketogenic diet or um, like carbohydrate fasting training. One way to think about it is to say, oh, well, fat oxidation went up during exercise. That must mean you're sparing carbohydrates. But another way to think about it is fat oxidation went up because it had to go up because your body wasn't able to access the carbs it needed. And generally, um, the, my read on, on all this carb stuff is the more carbohydrates you can burn, the, the better, because you get more energy like per unit, uh, even like per unit oxygen, um, carbohydrates give you more energy than fats do. Um, they're just, they're just, a, a superior energy source in, in terms of like delivering a lot of energy right now. So I don't really buy the you can or the spring energy strategy. I, I I don't. I think the product works in what it 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 is claiming to do. In that you get you don't get as big of a bump in blood glucose levels. But that's kind of the problem um, from my perspective, at least. So unless you're doing like unless you are in an ultra marathon where like the next aid station really is two hours away, um, I I think a traditional sports drink is probably the way to go. Yeah, interesting. Okay, that that really clears things up a little bit. Um, and another thing on the fat piece, something I was talking to um, Andy Jones a couple episodes ago, and I was asking him a similar question, and he said that if you if you get to an end of a marathon and you have any sugar or glycogen left over, that means you could have run it faster because fat 
cost more oxygen mm-hmm. per unit to burn. So it's like if you're if you're if your goal is to try to use more fat, then it's necessarily going to mean you're going to run slower than you could if you were burning. Um, I guess, <clears throat> but at the same time, I mean, I don't think the goal for anybody tr- who buys into this is to not use all of their carbs and glycogen stores. I mean, I think the the goal is just to make sure they don't run out of it at the end. So with the sugar spike thing happening, you know, you talked about the, the ratio of carbs to fat being roughly the same as your VO2 max is, uh, or your marathon pace is relative to VO2 max. So like around 80%. So if you're, burning on average like 80% carbs uh, for every calorie, you know, per um during a marathon, do these spikes that you get by taking something in, do you think that does that ratio go way up to closer to like 100% for a short little while and kind of burn cuz I guess the fear is that you're just going to burn through you know, your carbs too soon and I like you said you can always keep putting them in but it's such a big deficit to begin with that, you know, how worried should you be that um, you just won't be able to replace enough? And, you know, you want to keep that ratio steady at like 80, 20 or whatever, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I don't think the – so like with the like the spike, like it's not – it's not like uh, you take a gel and then like your blood sugar skyrockets for 15 minutes and then it plummets back to, to near zero. It's this like bump is, is a pretty big, pretty long, uh, pretty long one, uh, essentially because of, because of that like rate limiting step of, of um, carbs going through your stomach and into your intestines. So I don't think uh, that changes that much uh, just based on like what because when you do like physiology testing on somebody, you can see kind of like instantaneously breath to breath, what's their, what percentage of their energy is coming from fat, what's coming from carbs. And you don't really see wild swings. It's more like when you're taking carbs versus not taking carbs, um, more of those carbs that you are burning can come from an exogenous outside your body source than from the carbs that you have stored. So the intramuscular glycogen. So it's more, it, I don't think it shifts that percentage very much. Um, I think the only thing that really shifts that percentage is how fast you're going, but it does shift of the carbs you're burning, how much of them are the glycogen stored in your muscles and how much of them are those carbs that you're, you're consuming. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to the, uh, like preloading phase, you know, before the marathon even starts, I know there's been, it seems like the science has kind of changed over the years on this on like what the best way to, you know, load and like the super compensation thing where you like deplete and then load it a few days before. And then it seems like more recent studies are saying like, no, it really only takes a day or two to max out your stores. Um, is there any way to, cause I mean, when most people are, they eat food day to day, it's very hard to know how many, I mean, unless it's like a packaged thing that tells you, I mean, it's hard to know how many calories you're eating, how many grams of carbs you're eating. I mean, we have this precision we're going for during the race, you know, for the small, the, the smaller number of calories is what we can take during the race, like that 600 or whatever. But the larger piece 
that you're going to use is what's already there, the 2,000 or so calories. But we don't seem to be very precise about getting that number right other than just saying let's eat a bunch the week of the race. But, I mean, does it? I mean, is there any risk in not eating enough before the race? I mean, how much math should we be doing before the race the way we are doing it during the race? Yeah, I, I take a very practical approach to this. I, I tend to be pretty averse to any kind of big change right before your race. So to the extent that your training has been going well, I always recommend to people like you, whatever you eat the day before a marathon should be whatever you've been eating the day before your long runs and your, your marathon workouts. Um, as long as your diet isn't like too crazy weird, uh, in terms of where your, your, your macronutrients are coming from and how they're distributed. Um, I don't think like you could sit down and work out some like optimal carbo loading thing but in practice for me the knowing that you're gonna like get to get to the starting line and like feel good you know like stomach wise and and all of that that seems i think that is gonna dominate it um so i tend to be very averse to some of these more old school like will like deplete and then load and then unless you're doing that like all the time, you know, before every weekend long run, which I wouldn't recommend. Yeah. Um, it just seems like that's one where the, like kind of the 80, 20 solution of like eat high carb diet in the days leading up to the race, uh, and stick with your normal dietary pattern is probably going to give you the best results overall. Even if there might be some like marginal tweaks you could do with like, uh, loading up the day before. No, that that is generally like, I tend to be very very averse on those like yeah last minute changes. But the the process of filling up your tank, so to speak, or like maximizing your glycogen scores that stores that's not a uh, very. I mean, I mean, is there even? I don't know if there's even a way to study that, or if people know like on a just an average week during training. I mean. I would be curious to know like what your glycogen stores look like day to day, like after one runs before runs and like how hard is it to get them all the way full or are they, or, or do they mostly get full just with your normal diet, you know, day to day between runs? Um, or is there like some big, you know, people make it sound like a big push before the race to get them maxed out more than they usually are or something, but I don't know, you know, how much uh, difference there really is between normal, just daily storage of glycogen in the muscles versus, you know, any extra loading you would. Yeah. During periods of hard training, it is, it is pretty common for people to get into uh, situations where their, their glycogen stores are not topped out, especially if you like run in the morning and then you run in the evening again. Um, pretty commonly that's you know you're not going to be able to fully both in terms of the food you eat and in terms of how much time you have between training sessions um, you're probably not going to be able to fully restore your um, your intramuscular glycogen levels and this can be like this can be bad there's some um, there's some discussion that like maybe this like a relative energy deficit in sports reds phenomenon is driven to a large degree by low carbohydrate availability chronically um, you can also use that to your advantage with trying to set up uh, the occasional workout so that you go into it 
glycogen depleted. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, I think the the one of the big drivers of how like how full can your tanks get is how well adapted to training you are. Mm. Um, and like part of tapering in the last couple days or week or two before the marathon and reducing your training volume is you're not like blowing through those store those glycogen stores as much. So I think it is more challenging than people might think to keep those tanks high, like in the middle of training. And if you have like a long day, a long, you know, 15 mile day on Wednesday, and then you come back Thursday and do some kind of workout, probably your glycogen stores are, are going to be um, still in the hole when you start that workout. Um, but hopefully with, with like tapering down a little bit before the marathon and not doing really hard training right before the race, you give yourself the time you need to, with a, a reasonable diet, top off those tanks. And that's a good point about the taper because uh, most people think of the taper as, you know, resting or getting your energy back up or whatever. But, yeah, that really uh, changes the the fuel storage formula. Like if your exercise level goes down, that means obviously you're burning far fewer calories and then you can just hold on to more of it for that period and should be pretty easy to get them built up over a week or so. Um, uh, so we haven't talked about hydration, um, but you said something in the article you wrote, which was surprising to me. Just, it seemed to go against what the conventional wisdom you hear is. It said, uh, to quote here, um, for fluids, you want to drink when you are thirsty and not drink when you aren't thirsty. That sounded to me like very different than the typical like uh, air on the side of caution. If you're thirsty, it's too late. Um, I don't know. I just have an image of my mind from a Gatorade commercial of a guy sweating and drinking a bunch of fluid to put it back in, like you know, and sweating out the salt, needing to put the salt in salt tablets for cramping, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so this is sort of in the context of talking about electrolytes. And you also said um, there's no need to worry about electrolyte content or lack thereof. There's no good evidence that electrolytes provide any benefit over water or sugar water when it comes to hydration during marathons. So what is the deal with fluid, hydration, electrolytes? And we've talked about carbs this whole time, but how do electrolytes come into the picture? What is their role and how important is it to monitor their levels and replace them and that kind of thing? Yeah, this is this is maybe the area where people's like popular conception of what the science says is the most divergent from what what the evidence really is. Um, so the story with with just hydrating, like when should you drink and how much? Uh, there was a lot of early research that would bring people into the lab. They do like a a treadmill run to exhaustion. Like, okay, we're going to set the treadmill to ten miles an hour. Go until you can't go anymore or like a cycling uh, exercise bike thing. And these studies seem to show that if you get people dehydrated beyond about 2% of their body weight, uh, they would their performance would, would decrease. Uh, but then a couple people pointed out like, well, okay, this would suggest that like for optimal performance, you shouldn't let your body weight drop too much in terms of like sweating out lots of water. But when you look at people who are like winning major city marathons, they're losing like six, eight percent of their body weight, um, and you know, and running like 
205. So clearly that's not a big issue for them. Um, and uh, that led to a lot of like a lot of additional research into does does this really this like lab finding is this really translate to the real world? So I found a nice uh, a nice meta analysis of fourteen different studies that looked at this so called like ab, ad libitum like drinking when you're thirsty and not drinking when you're not thirsty versus a planned drinking protocol where like we're going to try to replace your your fluid loss blah blah blah. Um, and uh, across all 14 studies, when you pool the results, uh, it turns out just drinking when you're thirsty is um, slightly advantageous compared to a really rigorous planned program. So for me, that indicates that definitely um, going according to thirst is the way to go. There was another meta-analysis from 2012 that looked at... like. I think 15 studies, 128 subjects uh, in time trial type situations like a marathon or trial over a set distance, um, you can lose up to like 4% of your body weight without your performance being affected. Um, and something this is you know more relevant for people running in the like four, five, six hour marathon range, but the one unfortunate consequence of people's conceptions about replacing your body weight uh, by drinking a lot of water is that it leads to a real risk of, of hyponatremia or, or like water intoxication of people drinking too much and uh, and over hydrating. And, and that can be really, really serious. I went, when I was in Eugene earlier this summer, the, I saw some presentations from medical directors like Twin Cities Marathon, uh, Boston Marathon, Chicago Marathon. And they see at the medical tents way more cases of hyponatremia than dehydration. It's very rare to see dehydration, but pretty common to see people who've overhydrated. So that's the, the drinking fluids part. Uh, so for me, like that, that seems like the evidence is very conclusive. Drink when you're thirsty. Don't drink when you're not thirsty. Um, it's not, one of the reasons I like gel. I think I mentioned this in the, in the, the blog post, but one of the reasons I kind of like gels is that you can decouple your fluid intake from your carb intake. So you're running the Boston Marathon, it's you know 80 degrees, it's super hot. You're probably going to be really thirsty and drinking a lot of water. Whereas if you're at like CIM and it's 45 degrees and partly cloudy, uh, you might not be drinking very much at all because it's just not you know not very hot out. Uh, and you still want to be able to hit a good carb intake in both of those situations. So not relying just on like a, a constant concentration sports drink is is kind of nice. Now electrolytes. So, um, there, yeah, I, that, what I wrote in the article is essentially correct. Um, there is really no evidence that there is any benefit to taking electrolytes during exercise, uh, in terms of like, had you, had you taken something without electrolytes, would you get, uh, any, uh, would you, would you be any slower? Um, there are a couple studies on like ultra marathoners doing like 30 hour races in the heat that show like their hydration levels are just fine without taking any sodium. Um, so in, and, and also like this kind of idea of like, oh, I'm a salty sweater. I need to replace the sodium I lost. Uh, probably what's driving that is the fact that you have a lot of sodium in your diet and so you sweat a lot of it out versus 
having some high baseline rate of, of, of sodium loss. A lot of people also think that electrolytes have something to do with cramping, which is an issue people run into the marathon a lot. But that's another one where the evidence is pretty conclusive that cramping is driven by uh, central nervous system stuff and not electrolyte levels in the muscles. So I found some nice studies on uh, 100-mile ultra runners who have a lot of cramping issues, but uh, no correlation between blood sodium levels, sodium intake, and incidence of cramping in any of of those um, studies. And there's also some some nice studies showing that like with you can do some central nervous system kind of manipulation to uh, to control cramping. So there's an old there's an old trick that like you know, old school athletic trainers would do. If you got cramps, they would make you drink uh, pickle juice, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah. super acidic. It's got a bunch of salt in it. And this is part of why people thought um, that electrolytes had something to do with, with cramping is because that was the motivation for, for the pickle juice trick. But it turns out that trick works just as well if you take uh, like vinegar or some like acidic thing. And it turns out what it's doing is probably it's stimulating a nerve ending on the back of your throat with that acidity. And it's kind of like flipping a reset switch. Uh, and it can sometimes shut down cramping because cramping is essentially like a muscle is firing, but it won't stop. And that's something in the nervous system. Mm. Um, doesn't have anything to do with electrolytes. So now having said all this about electrolytes in practice, there I don't know of a single sports drink that doesn't have electrolytes. So like you're going to be taking them anyways, yeah. unless you're like mixing up your own concoction in your kitchen so in practice you're probably going to be taking electrolytes anyways so yeah yeah not well a big do you think the the reason for some of this um you know the evidence showing that you know it makes no difference do you think the because this is a pretty big contrast to what we're talking about with carbs where it's like very important get as much as you can it's like a limited resource do you think the difference with the hydration and the electrolytes is that maybe just through your normal diet and pre-storage, your body is going to have vastly more kind of like fat. You got mm-hmm. so much fat in your body to store. You could probably run 10 marathons on the amount of fat stored in your body. Is you think it's a similar thing going on with fluid and electrolytes? There's so much there that there's no risk of running out during a marathon or like any event. Yeah, essentially that's because it, it is, it is informative to, like think of the contrast of like with carbs, we have all of these just like slam dunk studies where, you know, two hour cycling time trial, three hour marathon, like pick your favorite endurance event. There is a ton of research showing like big significant advantages to taking carbohydrates. Whereas with electrolytes, there's a bunch of stuff that shows nothing. And then like, maybe you find one paper that's like, in like Guatemalan uh, fruit harvesters who are in 115 degree heat for 16 hours, like maybe a few biomarkers of kidney health improve a little bit if you take electrolytes. So like the the contrast for me is like, it's probably explanation, especially with some of the stuff with like ultra marathoners doing full ultra marathon races with like really no sodium intake and being just fine. That suggests to me that your body has huge reserves of that, that you just don't run out. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Let's see. Maybe one more. Well, first of all, you are uh, you still do some coaching on the side. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Do you have any spots open if somebody wants to uh, interview you or interested in getting you um, to help them out or consult them? What? Uh, how would you suggest somebody go about doing that? Yeah, so you can just email me at, at uh, john at runningwritings.com. Um, I do sort of kind of have a couple openings right now. Um, I'm also, for people who are maybe just like, I want to hear more about this like science of running stuff, but like can't commit to coaching. Uh, I'm starting a newsletter. Um, so by the time you post this at, uh, if you go to runningwritings.com slash news, um, I have like a maybe twice a month email newsletter just called news and notes where I send out this kind of like, Oh, Hey, I found a cool study about this, or here's a new thing I saw at a conference. Um, so people can check that out. Uh, and then I also have a book, although it's not really about marathon training, it's about like 10 K and under, um, which is also, uh, available on my websites, uh, and it's on Amazon called modern training and physiology for middle and long distance runners. That's, that's kind of my, the range of my online presence right now. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll put some links to that stuff in there so people can, uh, find it easily. Um, I think we've covered everything. I mean, unless there's something that you have in mind that you feel like needs to yeah, be said. Don't, I don't do you want to talk about like some of this uh, like train low um, yeah. well, carbohydrate restriction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be good, actually. Um, it, we You seem to make the point so well that it's like, why not just take in as many carbs as you can? Like figure out what you can handle and just take it. It makes so much sense. But I think it would, I think it would be worth maybe looking at the other side of the argument. Cause I definitely personally, I feel like I came to being interested in the marathon from the other side of this. Um, cause what always turned me off about ever wanting to run a marathon, you know, when I was in college running cross country track and after college trying to stay fast, <clears throat> I always looked at the marathon and thought, oh, oh they're taking food during that. I don't want to do that. That's like a, stupid endurance event like that has nothing to do with how fast you are i don't want to that just adds so much extra hassle and logistics like what is this food i mean i i like i don't want to deal with that i just want to train see how fast i can go and not have to think about food at all but once you've kind of accepted it like oh it's part of it you know um it's okay people you know it's still it's still a real athletic event but i feel like some a small sliver of people have this perspective of kind of a work around the food. Like what if I can figure out a way to not even need to take fuel in and still run at my fastest. And the whole, the whole, you know, train of thought there is, well, you just have to increase the fat contribution to every mile instead of 80, 20, make it more like 60, 40, um, either by manipulating your diet, uh, or by, you know, training, different training methods. So, and, and I guess one, one valid reason to maybe want to do that, I guess, is, as you've brought up is gastrointestinal problems. I mean, if people literally can't handle taking in six, 800 calories during a race, I mean, which is totally, like you said, that's not uncommon. It may be a valid, you know, thing to look into is like, how can I work on, uh, but I guess the first question is just physiologically speaking, is it even a valid concept to 
um, like the ratio you said, your your carb contribution is going to roughly equal what percentage of marathon paces of your VO2 max, 80%. Is that just a fixed kind of core truth or is there any variability or trainability to that? Yeah, so I, I, uh, I dove back into the research prepping for this podcast and there's been a ton of stuff as you might imagine with you know keto and low carb being really popular kind of like fat adapted athletes uh concepts you know you'll see that everywhere um so there are there are kind of like two two like ways to think about this uh like training in a state of low carbohydrate availability the first one is exactly what you articulated can i turn myself into like a a fat burning machine and shift that curve um and it turns out you can if you go on a ketogenic diet uh or you significantly restrict your carbohydrate availability um within certainly 30 days and possibly as few as like 10 or 12 days you can significantly shift that curve such that at a given absolute intensity you are like meaning running speed you burn a higher proportion of of fat and a lower proportion of carbs, which sounds uh, great. But the problem is the research so far in endurance athletes indicates that um, your economy goes down and your race performance goes down. And there are like three different very carefully controlled studies. Now, they are in race walkers, not runners. Um, So race walking economy is not the same thing as running economy. Um, but it's pretty close. Uh, like the, you know, mechanically they're not that different. Um, so, and, and, and even beyond the economy stuff, there's some controversy with like, how do you calculate economy when you're shifting the utilization of, of energetics, uh, from, from carbs to fat. But, um, for me, the big, the big, uh, outcome is like their race performances got significantly worse. Um, and people who are on a high carb diet got significantly better. So, um, it really, in theory, it like might be possible to make this work, but nobody has figured out how to do it. And, and reliably, when you switch to a, a long-term ketogenic low carb diet, uh, number one, your absolute VO2 max goes down. Um, because you just you know you can't burn as many carbs at a really high intensity, uh, and number two, probably this hasn't been shown in runners, but probably your or at least that I'm aware of, but probably your economy goes down too, which is like doubly bad. So that seems to me, at least as of as of right now, that suggests that the do a ketogenic diet for several weeks or days strategy is not a good one. However, uh, there does seem to be more promise in doing this like train low for specific training sessions, like one day. And this is something that, that like top level coaches have used for, uh, for a while. Um, Renato Canova talks about doing it with his like special block workouts for marathoners where they'll do a marathon pace workout in the morning. And then they'll only drink water and tea and they'll only eat like salad with olive oil, you know, so, so no carb intake really. And then they'll do another marathon pace session in the afternoon. Um, this summer I was talking with a physiologist named Trent Stellingworth who works with team Canada. He says they use this kind of strategy occasionally with some athletes. 
Uh, and the kind of conceptually, it's sort of similar to an interval workout in that when you do a fast interval workout, you are starving your muscles of oxygen and that, that like puts them in a crisis where they want to adapt and improve by like upregulating various enzymes and stuff. Same idea. If you starve your muscles of glucose, you put them in a crisis and then they're going to adapt and uh, hopefully like learn to store more glucose, learn to burn more glucose. Now, the the evidence for this is kind of in along the state of like, this seems really promising and there's some cool studies in rodents that suggest like you can upregulate this and that protein. Um, there are uh, a few guidelines that I found from a couple uh, articles on like kind of here's what makes sense strategy wise for doing this is you do it occasionally you don't do it for every workout you do it for an occasional workout and you intersperse these train low sessions with other sessions where you are really well fueled up um because like the one disadvantage of this these kind of sessions is like you're gonna not perform as well right just like you wouldn't run as fast in the marathon if you didn't fuel at all you're not going to run as well in your workout if you don't fuel um, but maybe that's worth it if you can get the right adaptation. So here's here's the recommendations that I found, or here's a couple different ways to implement this in practice. Um, one way is to to just train in a fasted state. So like you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, you don't have anything with carbohydrates in it, and then you you do your marathon workout. A lot of people just do that normally. Um, yeah. Another one is to train twice a day like we were talking about earlier, that puts you in a state of reduced muscle glycogen availability. So like that Canova strategy I just talked about where like morning workout, not very many carbs in the afternoon, and then an afternoon workout. Um, another thing that uh, you can do is you can withhold carbs after training. So you like you, instead of like do your long run and then you have a big breakfast, you wait several hours, um, again, to put your muscles in this state where they're like starved for, for carbohydrates and they're really, uh, you know, they're really suffering and really feeling a stimulus to, to want to improve. Um, another thing that some, uh, some programs will do is like you do an evening workout, you don't eat, wake up the next morning and train again. That's Ooh. kind of like a flipped version of that, like two day workout. Um, but probably the way to do this is with a kind of like a staple training session, not some like brand new, super tough right. thing. Um, but that's, you know, in terms of like people probably want to know, like, how often should I do this? When, how far out from the marathon should I do this? Um, and I like, really don't know. Um, there's, it's still pretty early with like yeah. optimal timing and programming. Um, the one thing I will say is is you just you want to be careful with it, and this, this is something that that uh, Trent Stellingworf told me this summer is like they don't do this with everybody because you're essentially you're temporarily inducing uh, Reds relative energy deficit in sports uh, when you do this, and uh, it can be uh, it can be destructive, and it can also put some people in kind of like a um, the wrong like psychological orientation about like fueling and eating. Um, so got to be careful with it. Um, you should, if you do do this, you should have a little bit of protein after you work out too. And that's one other 
tip that I found because that it doesn't mess up the cell signaling pathway stimulus that you get, but it does prevent your body from like uh, eating itself. Because if you don't eat food, your body just kind of starts to eat itself for energy. Yeah. So I have not used this with athletes I've worked with mostly because uh, it does seem kind of like high risk, high reward. Um, but it is something to consider, especially if you're if you're getting to that point where you've kind of like you've got all the low hanging fruit in terms of like pretty good training and pretty good fueling. This is one of those more advanced options to to think about. Yeah. Do you think the high level coaches that implement these sorts of interventions, <clears throat> do you think the goal in that sort of thing is to adapt a little bit so that you'll be able to run faster mile 25, 26 when perhaps you've run out of glycogen versus, and maybe the answer is both, but um, shift that ratio a little bit, like we said, of like along the whole way, all the miles, be able to burn a little bit more fat, a little fewer carbs per mile along the way to prevent running out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's So that's that's like exactly the kind of question that I feel like we need some really good human studies on. Right. Because yeah. coaches talk about it in the sense of like you're building like a turbo diesel engine that can burn fat. But I, I suspect exactly like you said, one way to think about it is maybe you're, what you're doing is you're, you're like amping up your ability to burn fat by doing these, these, these like train low, like super compensation workouts. But another way that another thing that might be the case is that the adaptation that you get from a training session like this is to elevate your body's uh, carbohydrate availability, its ability to oxidize carbohydrates, um, and its ability to really, you know, use the full energy reserves you have. Um, based on the the keto stuff that we talked about earlier, I suspect that the benefit is is uh, better or improved carbohydrate either storage or or utilization. Um, but uh, that's just a hunch based on the fact that when you do shift that curve with the keto diet, you don't get beneficial adaptations and your ability to burn carbs goes down. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of waiting on some, you know, clever grad student to do a really great study where they look at uh, what is like which enzymes go up after you do one of these. What do those enzymes do? What happens to like the kind of the dynamics of um, energy utilization kind of before and after one of the a training block with you know two or three or four of these kinds of train low sessions uh, and what are the adaptations that you're seeing is it more carb storage is it you burn more carbohydrates is it that you can pull more uh glucose from the blood into your muscles is it the mitochondria there's a lot of options there's a lot of things there's a lot of possibilities uh for that and and i quite honestly don't know which which yeah. ones that this stimulates yeah, it's so true. I mean, there's so many, I feel like there's so many different potential strategies around that. Cause I mean, there, there's a saying, you know, in running, especially like in the shorter and like sprints and things like, uh, you know, the faster your max speed, the faster your sub max speed will be. 
and sort of like, you know, we don't want to get tired in a race, but if we do get tired, we want to be able to run as fast as we can while we're tired. Sort of as like a, uh, <clears throat> sort of, you know, you think of it like a, sort of like a safety, um, secondary, like fail safe type of device, sort of like, we don't want to use this. Like we don't want to use the generator in the closet, but if the power goes out, we have it if we need it sort of idea. So like we don't want to hit the wall. We don't want to crash in a marathon, but if we do, we want to be able to run as fast as possible in that distressed state and not have it be a complete crash and burn situation. So let's, let's, you know, explore that territory a little bit in training every now and then. Um, or like you said, is it more of a preventative measure? Like, uh, we, we want to do these kind of things to ensure that we don't run out and have other ad- adaptations that are preventing this situation, uh, or all of the above. Um, it is, yeah, it does sound like, like you said, high risk, high reward, uh, something you'd have to just kind of experiment with, um, but, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, well, gee, if you only do this occasionally and then other most of your main sessions you're doing well fed and you and fuel during them, that almost seems like confusing. Like, well, does your body wait? Which one do you want me to do? But then I thought, well, <laughs> we do that with everything else in training. We run easy days really slow. You know, we do intervals hard and everything in between. So, you know, it doesn't. You know, the dosage of different interventions doesn't have to be like, oh, if you want to run a marathon, that means you run a marathon every day in training. Like, you know, your body can adapt, I guess, to small doses of things along the way if it's just experienced it a few times. Um, that is very interesting. It's it's a yeah, it would be very interesting to get some more uh, literature on that at some point. And because um, it is a very interesting prospect of and it could be a game changer for people who um fueling is a roadblock for and you know and that's what they that's what holds them back yeah yeah absolutely this is in terms of like areas of of like fueling research or like marathon training stuff this set of things is like the one i'm most interested in in like hopefully seeing seeing people do cool new stuff with like how often should you do this? Uh, how big of a stimulus does it need to be? Um, kind of getting some, getting some like guidelines on that would be super nice. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, all the prep work and legwork you did uh, for the article you wrote and for getting ready for this conversation. I really appreciate you spending all that time and sharing it. I mean, that's it's super helpful. I mean, I feel like we've turned over all the stones, and you know put the myths aside and all that kind of thing and, and figured out what reality is. So, uh, it's definitely very helpful if you're training for a marathon in which I am now, uh, just having something to something tangible to hold on to and like, Oh, okay. You can point to it. Like, okay, this is, this makes sense. This is the evidence. Here's what I'm going to try. And then vary based on that versus kind of just in the dark out on a limb, not knowing what you're doing or why you're doing it. Um, so yeah, yeah, really yeah, it. and it is it is nice that like just having some basics to go to, I think for a lot of people will go a long ways towards improving their ability to run the marathon. Like I'll talk to people and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I ran a marathon. I took I took one gel at twenty miles," right. and <laughs> there's just like uh, you know you might feel overwhelmed with like all this technical details about like calories per mile and all this, but there's 
there's a lot of optimization you can do that's really easy for people because quite honestly a lot of people either don't fuel or have like very 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 suboptimal fueling and there's a lot of like easy ground to gain there yeah and like i said i when i first ever considered or didn't consider running a marathon it was because of this and now i almost see it as sort of like a neat feature of the marathon because you know you have shorter you have shorter events where this is not a factor at all which i used to be more interested in because it seems more fun like let's just focus on the fitness and that's it and then you have longer um you know ultra marathons and like multi-day 24 hours 100 miles whatever where it's almost like a survival event and it's like almost like all about the food and the Mm -hmm. gear and the you know the stuff and it doesn't seem as much about the fitness and the marathon seems like this really sweet spot it's like it kind of makes it feel like a NASCAR thing where like the strategy of the fueling and stuff, it just comes into play and it makes it more multidimensional and you know, yeah, the strategy around it is interesting. I think, um, makes it really a fun event to try to train for. And it also, I feel like the fueling piece gives it this component of a little extra mystery and maybe a mm-hmm. little surprise. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, there's this like small little glimmer of hope that, you know, maybe this fueling, method will just be what puts me over the edge and um so yeah it's fun but um but yeah thanks a lot john i really appreciate uh yeah absolutely this was great this is so much fun well yeah again i will put all your uh links and stuff and if anybody wants to reach out to you or anything and definitely check out runningwritings.com there's it's always something there's like different uh you know different topics but it's always something like what we've been talking to super deep lots of substance um so i definitely recommend checking that out yeah well thanks so much for having me on this is this is great yeah anytime